HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hi, this is Katie Kiefer from What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special show in June 2015, one of our breakfast cider shows. Uh, I'm joined by my, my gracious colleagues, uh, Gay Howard and Kay Michaels of United States of Cider, at Hello Cider. I love that, at Hello Cider. You know, we've, we've been doing these special extra sessions on Heritage Radio Network, which will be airing over the summer and fall of 2015. And we've been exploring some of the, the new innovators in cider, but as well as some guys like uh, Ben Watson, who you know founded Cider Days, and and uh, people like that. A little the background, the revival of American hard cider. But a, a real special guest came into town to, to talk at Wasale last night, and it's John Bunker, Apple historian, who's uh, going to tell us a, a lot about cider in America. And uh, I think. I don't think I can say too much about him that he can't say himself. So, John Bonker, welcome to the show, man. I'm really, it's my honor to have you here at Jimmy's number 43. <laughs> well, thank Cheers. you very much. Yeah. <laughs> and we're drinking cider in the mornings. It's 10, 10 o'clock in the morning. So. It's the perfect breakfast beverage. <laughs> well, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. So, thank you all very much for, for having me. Um, so fire away if you have questions. So in, the, in the world of cider, you know, there's, you know, Rowan Jacobson has written some, some things about the history of apples, but you, you're really a guy that knows about apples in America and the history of hard cider. So softball questions, you know, for example, when were the first apples brought to America? Let's, let's start in the beginning and go, and go deep and go from that up to, up to the temperance movement. How about that? Sure. So the, the first apples uh, were brought as soon as Europeans came here. And uh, in fact, there were Europeans, Portuguese, and others fishing off the coast of Maine um, uh, in the 1500s. And so they brought apples with them, um, the apples in the apple barrel on the ship, people eating apples. Um, there's a famous... Um, uh, little vignette in the in the Robert Louis Stevenson's 
Treasure Island book where Jim Hawkins goes to reach into the apple barrel and falls into the apple barrel and falls asleep and then hears about the mutiny. And that apple barrel was on every ship. And so as soon as people were coming over and fishing off, primarily off the coast of Maine, um, where, you know, the fishing was great, um, they brought apples with them. And so those apples, the cores wound up on the beaches of the islands of Maine. And as soon as there were any kind of settlements, European settlements, they immediately planted apples from seed. So really, before 1600, there were seeds. There were seedlings being planted here. And then as soon as people really began to colonize the mainland, um, they all they all planted apples almost entirely from seed. So orchards just were, were everywhere. And, and um, Johnny Appleseed was um, uh, just doing what everybody was doing, which was planting apples from seed. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing to think that it goes back that far. Um, in, in your book, you know, you have a book out that's pretty great, uh, Not Far From the Tree, A Brief History of the Apples and the Orchards of Palermo, Maine, 1804 to 2004. What, what got you interested in apples in the first place? Well, that's, um, the, uh, I like to say that I have a different answer for that every time, and some of them are more far out than others. So I'll stay to a not-so-far-out oh, one. Oh, no, we want the far-far-out <laughs> <laughs> no, Because it would probably take the whole 15 minutes. Um, I think uh, I, I always love to be outdoors, and I always love to climb trees. And I'm a very visual person, so I love colors and shapes and sizes. And... Um, and so I got, when I got to Maine uh, at, a, at a very young age, um, I went to visit and, and said, okay, this is about age 11. I decided I would move there as soon as I could. And so I went to college there because I could be in Maine and then uh, bought very inexpensive land while I was in college. That was the whole back to the land time when land was you know, basically abandoned and very inexpensive in Maine. And, uh, and all over the place were these, were these apple trees that were just everywhere, all over town. And, and they were abandoned. People weren't, people weren't picking the apples. Our, my parents' generation um, had basically been, been sold that idea that, that farming wasn't really of any value anymore and we could get it all at the grocery store. And if you wanted a pie, you buy a frozen one in the frozen section and so forth. And most of that generation had gone to work um, at either one of Maine's mills or in Augusta at the state capitol or at the big shipyard in Bath. And so it was only the grandparents who were still around, my grandparents' generation. And they mostly lived with their children, you know, who were my parents' generation. And so, and so um, all over town were these big old trees and um, I had no idea what they were. I mean, I know there were apples, but I didn't know one variety from another. And, um, and it was free food, you know, and I was in my <laughs> early 20s, you know, I was in my early 20s, and, and I thought, you know, this is great. So I would stop in, knock on the door, ask if I could have the apples. They'd say yes. And the next thing I know, I'd be out there with grandma and grandpa collecting apples off the, out of the grass, and they would be telling me stories about, you know, and then they were the ones that initially taught me the different varieties. 
because they'd say, oh, this is a Baldwin, and I'd go, and I'd take, you know, some of them, I'd put them all into bags and whatever, bring them home, and then some I'd put on my counter, and I'd make little signs, you know, Baldwin, and, you know, <laughs> and so I learned them one by one that way. Hmm. That's a good story. So it starts, it seems to me, okay, it starts with free food, right, and the apples that are there. Yeah. However, you seem to have dedicated a lot of your life to these apples, so how did that transition happen? When did you become such a devotee, and why? Well, well, the apples, I, I got it in my head that that um, that they were they were um, uh, my apple trees, mm-hmm. and um, so I didn't own the land, but but I got it that they were a gift from somebody anonymous in the past who had grafted these trees, and I learned about eventually I learned about grafting. I had never even heard of grafting at that point. But so some anonymous grafter grafted this tree for me. They didn't know I was going to exist. They they um, they didn't know who I was. I wasn't. They were no relation to me. But but they did it for me, just like you know they did it for you if you had been there. And uh, and so I felt um, I, I felt a few things. One is that they wouldn't have done it if it hadn't been good. So there had to be something good about it. And if the if the apple tasted weird to me, there must be some use for it that I wasn't getting yet, you know. And and I eventually learned that some are for sauce, some for cider, some for pies, you know, whatever. Um, also, um, um, I I decided also also the fact that they were being grown there in that town. Um, finally got me to realize that if I wanted to grow apples, or if I wanted there to be apples being planted, that maybe we should be thinking about the ones that had been grown traditionally there, because they they had been successful, you know, and I tried eventually, I, I thought at my first sort of foray into growing apples, was I went and helped some people plant an orchard, and then they gave me, you know, they gave me ten trees or something to take home and plant as a, as a, you know, you know, payment, mm-hmm. and uh, and none of them did very well, and they were sort of semi-dwarf, red, delicious sort of types, um, but I planted them and they didn't do well, and one day I was driving around town, and I remember exactly where I was um, when I when I had this thought was was, well. You know why? Why am I using these trees that are from like a thousand miles away? Why don't I just plant the ones that were growing here anyway and did so well? And by that point, although I still didn't know many varieties, I knew you know maybe ten or twenty at that point. Um, I did. I did know. I had. I had like dawned on me, and I had sort of got it that there were multiple varieties growing around. Palermo and Palermo's not a an apple mecca. It's just it's just where I live, so that's why I picked it. That's why I selected it for my book. Um, but I I I um, I decided that I would focus on grafting the varieties that had been grown traditionally in that area. The the other thing that another thing that happened and interrupt me if you, if you want or, or like go like this one. I'm supposed to stop. <laughs> Um, You're never supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
in the it, the the first apple trees I planted were about 1980, and and shortly after that, uh, people from Cornell start to go to uh, Kazakhstan, to uh, to the original orchards, the original forests of apples, and and at first. I was just desperate to go, you know. I just really, really wanted to go. I had no money, and and I and they didn't know who I was. I was just Joe Blow. I didn't know anything, and um, and I I thought about it and thought about it, and then and then I thought, you know what? Um, and and I'm having this thought as I'm driving by abandoned orchards, abandoned trees, all these things that are going old lilacs, old roses. I'm thinking, oh wait a minute. I could spend my entire life in Maine, probably in Waldo County, which is the county I live in, just re, re, you know, rediscovering, exploring for what's here and has just been abandoned. You know, that there's, there's all these things, all these like little adages like, you know, think globally, act locally, you know, all those mm-hmm. sorts of things. They're cliches, but they're true, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, um, and so I thought, well, you know, there's, they've got Kazakhstan covered, you know. Mm-hmm. You know there's, there's all these Phil Forrest line, all these great people are, are over there, they're doing it, they've got it, you know, they don't need me over there, <laughs> you know. Is anybody doing this here, you know, where I live in Maine? And, and no one was. And, um, and so I thought, okay, well, well, if I'm going to do something that I love to do, and at that point I realized that you know I was really getting into this whole thing and really enjoying it, and I love the color, you know, colors, the shapes, the sizes, the flavors, the everything, um, the histories, the stories, the people. Um, that that here's something that I would not be compromising what I want to do at all, and I could make a real contribution. Because, because, and it wouldn't be like, oh, look at him. He's Mr. Do-Gooder. He's doing this contribution. It would be something that I could do what I was totally passionate about and still be doing something that would contribute to, you know, the community, however you wanted to find the community, because no one else was doing it. And so um, I, I started a little, seed, a little tree catalog and, um, called Fedco, and we started to sell trees and um, trees and shrubs and vines and berries and so forth. And I did that partly because um, all the, the back to the land movement was, um, uh, and, and Rowan, said, Rowan Jacobson says some really good things about this. I really like the way he puts it. But, but basically his take on it, and I think I agree, is that it was a, you know, sort of like, you know, you know to the society, I'm going back. I'm I'm getting out of here. I'm I'm leaving Dodge. I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to abandon society and go live in the woods, and I don't care about it. And and his take on what's going on now is is it looks like the same thing, but it's not. Now it's about we're creating a new society. We're 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 um, we're yeah we're creating a new world as opposed to leaving and, and disappearing. That group, um, in, and it's impossible to generalize, but I'll generalize anyway, but that group was more, what to me was more into um, um, living, sort of living off the land, quote unquote, and um, growing vegetables, um, but not really growing trees. And, um, 
And I think that may have been partly because um, um, uh, there was uh, plenty still around of the old trees. And also, um, it takes a different kind of mindset to plant a tree, um, especially a fruit tree. You plant a lettuce plant or a tomato plant or whatever, and we have a when we have a gigantic vegetable garden, you know, you get the fruit, you know, that year. And if you plant, um, you know, raspberries, you get it in a year or two or three. Well, with apples, you know, you, it's going to be years, and or pears or plums, or, and um, and so I think that that um, in a very transient society, which is what we are living in, um, it's hard to think beyond um, this year. And um, uh, the, the, there's, there's a beat poet named Gary Snyder, who, who I don't know very much about, but I know a little bit about him. And, and he has a very famous thing that he said, which was, don't move. And, um, and I think what he means by that is that, is that you pick a place that you're going to call your place. It could be this really cool bar in New York City. It could be my farm in Palermo, wherever it is. It doesn't have to be. There's no, it's just somewhere. And then you commit yourself to it. That's, that's what you do. And so. Wow, this is a great introduction to, to this special session of Breakfast Ciders on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. All right. And you're listening to Novella Glass City by Nair. That's N-I-R-E on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll be right back. to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special breakfast cider session, June 2015 at Jimmy's number 43. I'm here with my gracious colleagues, Gay Howard and Kay Michaels of United States of Cider at Hello Cider, and our special guest, John Bunker, Apple Historian. So John, you're talking about discovering apples in your home, Palermo, Maine. But let's go back, you know, when you started doing more historical research and some of this research that you found. So I was uh, uh, I, I was working as a manager in a co-op store, and the co-op store was was tiny. It was it was uh, long before co-op supermarkets, and uh, and one of the things that we did was uh, we would sell your produce on consignment. So you bring it in, and we didn't care whether it's organic or conventional, or we didn't care anything about it. If you came in, and we sort of knew you, and and we'd we'd put out your produce, and we'd sell it, and then give you a percentage. So one day, um, a very old man came in, and um, and he had come in before, and I sort of knew who he was. And his name was Ira Proctor, and he was from Appleton, Maine, appropriately enough. And he had two bushels of apples with him. And he said, um, could I sell these um, on consignment? And I said, sure, you know. And, and I looked at them, and the apples were purpley black. And um, I took one look at them, and I was just mesmerized. I had never seen them before. And he said, these apples are black Oxfords. And, um, and so I said, sure, we'll, we'll sell them. And he left, and I bought all of them, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, 
How many were there? Two bushels. <laughs> so, okay. so, you know, around mm-hmm. 70, 80 pounds. Mm-hmm. So I took them home and, and, uh, and fell in love with them. They became my favorite apple. And, um, and then I started to, then I, I uh, went and visited him, got cyan wood, that's the twigs that you use for grafting, from him, from his trees, grafted a tree for myself. At that point, by that time, I, had, I knew how to graft. And, um, and uh, then um, more, just, just from, probably from that experience, um, I began to spend more time everywhere I went looking for older trees. And, and instead of just going to pick them and collect them, I was also making a lot of cider at that point. Um, fresh and fermented, but very um, um, with, without any particular recipe or plan, or, or I was just making it. Um, uh, I went from from that just like being a uh, being a scavenger, you might say, to starting to think that I wanted to know more about each of these. Um, I wanted to learn. What their, I definitely wanted to learn what their names were, and which was very difficult because a lot of the people who had these old trees did not know what the names were. But I also wanted to begin to learn the histories about them and um, uh, and the story. And I and I wanted to and I began to sort of collect um, the story. So I, I consider the history to be okay. Who who named it Black Oxford? Uh, where were they? When did it originate, et cetera? And then the story, I call it, is like, okay, so Ira Proctor came into the store and brought this apple, and I learned about it. So that's sort of how I distinguish that. And um, and um, there was, a, I, I had a number of mentors. I started to seek out old, mostly men, old men who had apple collections because during the middle of the 20th century, as it was more and more only, you know, half a dozen varieties being sold anywhere, um, there were these older men who had been going out and finding the old trees, doing what I, what I aspired to do, they had been doing for years, and forming collections, uh, two in particular, one, one was named Erlen Goodhue, who was a dairy farmer, and the other was Francis Fenton, who did have a commercial orchard, but a very small one. And they spent a lot of time out tracking down varieties, bringing back the signwood, grafting them, and then eventually selling the fruit. And so I got, I got to know both of them very well, plus some other older men as well. And they taught me more varieties. And, um, and Francis, who just died about two months ago at age 99, and still was operating his orchard, he, um, I went to uh, Common Ground Fair, which is the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners annual sort of fun fair, agricultural fair every fall. And Francis was there, and he had a little display about, um, you know, about, a big, about as big as a coffee table or something, uh, but, but inclined with nails sticking out of it. And he took the apples and stabbed them onto the nails. So he had a display of apples <laughs> with names, and he had maybe 20 old varieties. And, um, and people, would, you know, people would gravitate towards it. And so they they want to see that you know it's they're so tactile and visual and everything, and so I you know took note of that, and um, he stopped doing it. I'm not really sure why. This was quite a long time ago, 
And so um, I started to do it. So um, um, we were, you know, my catalog was going by then, my Fedco catalog, and, and I wanted a way of getting people to come to the table where I was giving away catalogs. So I put out a display of apples, and first it was 10, then it was 20, then it was 30, you know, eventually now we, we still do it, and now it's about 200 varieties um, each year. But I would put out a bunch, and people would come, and they would see the apples, and then they'd, out would come the stories. You know, and uh, um, one of the early ones that was um, uh, really productive was uh, uh, a man came to the table and he saw the apples. He said, I have an apple and you're going to love it and you have to come visit me. And the name of the apple is Canadian Strawberry. And um, so I went home that night and I thought, yeah, okay. So I went home that night and looked in my old books and, you know, everything I had, which wasn't a lot back then, but I had some pretty good books. That, and, the, and the best, really, is, is the two-volume Apples of New York from 1906 or so, S.A. Beach. Um, and, uh, but I couldn't find Canadian strawberry anywhere. So I thought, eh, you know, it's this, it's, you know. So, you know, I, I didn't follow up. I thought, you know, he's just making this up or something. I don't know. So I waited a year. Yeah, or he waited a year. I didn't wait the year. I was doing other things. And that the fair happened, and I had my display. And here he comes again. And he says, you have to come see this, this apple tree. You're going you're gonna to eat it, and you're going to love it, and it's called Canadian Strawberry. So I said, okay, okay, I'll go. So I drove up a few days later. And, and there were three trees, so I knew it was a grafted tree. If there's one tree, unless you can see the graft, you, it could be a seedling, which, which seedlings can be good. The first Macintosh was a seedling. Every other Macintosh mm-hmm. was a McGraft. But, but, right? but it wouldn't have a name you know, unless you give it to it. So I arrived. There were three trees that were all the same. I knew, I knew it was a grafted tree. I took a bite. I went, oh, this is just unbelievable. It's so great. So, so um, it became one of my favorite apples. Um, and, the, and now we've been selling them now for many years in the catalog, and it's very popular. People really like it, and people who grow it, eventually, you know, I get a little note saying, oh, I tried it. I love it. So what, what is it about um, that apple that was so special? Well, it's, it's, it is a dessert fruit, which means fresh eating, and it's ripe um, around September 20, 20th, 25th in Maine. Um, it's it's just a, a really, really good fresh-eating apple. It also supposedly makes really good early-season juice, but I've never juiced it. We've just eaten them fresh. And um, so I so um, because of the catalog, um, uh, what I wanted to do in the catalog was, um, at first it was just like a sheet of paper with, with names, and, and, and it might say winter apple or, you know, makes a good pie, and that was about it. But then I started to realize that that um, that people were reading the catalog, and um, I didn't think they were. And um, people would come up to me and say, you know, you know, you should vary your selections more because we really like what you have. And I think, God, are they actually reading my catalog? <laughs> so, so then I started to think, well, you know what? If you treat your customers, and this is, I'm sure, this is just as true in this restaurant as it anywhere else. If you treat them with respect and you speak to their intelligence, you will be rewarded. And so I decided that I would, I would write something um, intelligent, or I hope was intelligent, about every variety. 
and that meant learning about them. I had to know something. I couldn't just, I wasn't just going to make it up. And, um, and, and you can only say, it's really delicious about, you know, 20 times before <laughs> it sounds redundant. So I had to learn. So, so for example, with this Canadian strawberry, um, it turns out that, um, that the, um, the family that probably originated it, this is in Solon, Maine, which is in sort of northern-ish Maine, north-central Maine, um, was named Davis, and the Davis family came from Acton, Massachusetts, and um, and the original Davis, or the the one that's the most famous, is is the um, Minuteman that is the statue at the Old North Bridge in Concord. So he he was the model for the statue, and he was the first um, officer of the of the Revolution to die, and um, his son. Um, and I can't remember their first names now, but it doesn't matter. His son uh, left Acton, went, Acton is right next to Concord, in fact, he used to be part of Concord, left Acton, went to Solon, brought his family, and started a farm in Solon. This was back when, uh, right around the Revolution, a little bit afterwards, a lot of people from southern New England were going to Maine, because that was the only place that there was still land. And, um, and then had this farm. And somewhere along the way came this apple, the Canadian strawberry. And did they did they invent it? Is it from Concord or Acton? Is it from Maine? Is it from that family? The the fellow who introduced me to it is named Roy Slam, and he's also now deceased. But he bought it. He and his wife bought it from two Davis brothers who were the last. They had been in that family for you know two hundred and forty years or whatever. So um, so I. I started to have to do this for everything we were selling in the catalog, and, and I just found it to be, number one, incredibly fascinating. I'd never been into history. I always thought history was about who was screwing or killing who, um, and, um, and then I started to realize it's actually not. It's about you know, really fun things like you know, what were people doing with their lives. Um, and, uh, and I also realized that, that I was... Um, I was becoming a privileged guest in in households of people who I had never met before. So so people would call me up, you know, they'd hear about what I did, they'd come to the fair, they'd see my display. I started to do talks, so I'd bring the display with me, um, and I'd get a call from somebody. The next thing I know, I'm in their house, I'm in their car, I'm driving off to some abandoned place, and and I'm being treated as though I was their child or their best friend or something. And I also, it was impossible for me not to notice that some of these people were really rich, some of the people were really poor, some were very, very right-wing, some were very, very left-wing. Um, it was everybody. Everybody seemed to love apples. And so just by, um, not by design at all, I had found this thing that was endearing me to practically everybody, and um, and and I also um, um, feel as though I think probably a lot of other people would agree that that the way that government and society and so forth is working now is is just you know how angry and hurt and mean you can be to each other, and it just seems like um, maybe we need things that unite us, even if it's something as, you know, seemingly insignificant as an apple. So, um, so 
I could tell you another story. Yeah, I mean, let's, but, let's yeah, stop. We're drinking. Actually, we're drinking this cider too right now, and it's it's uh, it's Redbird Wild Pippin. It's the 2013 release, and they're from the Finger Lakes area of New York. Yeah. Do you want me to say something about this? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, so uh, Redbird is made by. Um, well, I've never been there, but I know Eric Schott, who is the cider maker, and um, and he's using. Um, some wild apples, I don't know what percentage. He's, um, um, he's one of the people who is beginning to explore, uh, look for, search for new possible cider apples, generally from seedlings, from wild fruit that's coming up. And there's a, long, a really long tradition dating right back to when Europeans first came to, the, to America of using these wild fruits, these wild apples, um, for cider. They, uh, they tend to be smaller, and that's good because, because um, you, you want what's in the core and in the skin. That's where the flavors, that's where the antioxidants and the different nutrients, all that stuff, that's all where it is. And the pulp is, um, is basically sort of water and, you know, crispiness or whatever and so when you're eating a dessert when you're trying to sell a dessert fruit and you know whole foods you don't care about the skin and the core you care about the flesh but when you're making cider you care about the skin and the core that's what you want and so these wild apples um, are packed with uh, with astringency and you know flavors and so forth so um, every that they the the um, the sort of uh, the beauty of this uh, um, method of making cider is that is that you cannot replicate it. So this flavor to me has a peculiar. This cider has a peculiar flavor to me that I've never tasted before. I mean, I've had his ciders before, and maybe I've had this. You know, some maybe I've even had this batch, but I don't remember it. So this this um, has sort of a little odd twist to it. To me. That's really good because it's flavor, you know. <laughs> and I want flavor. I want. I want to know that I'm drinking. That I'm actually um, imbibing in something that has taste to it. I know nothing about craft beer, but when I go to a place that only has beer, I say to them, "They say, well, what do you want?" And there's like 70 beers that are all craft beers. Like, I say, give me something with a lot of flavor. Well, I'll tell you, this, this is a lot of flavor. It's Redbird, Wild Pippin. We love, we love the cider from Redbird. Having a great show with John Bunker. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. And this one's called Try by Bad Citizen. We will be right back on Beer Sessions. Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. This is a special breakfast cider session, June 2015. My gracious colleagues, Gay Howard, Kay Michaels, and uh, our good friend, John Bunker, talking about apples. So, so Gay, what, what is this next cider that you brought for us? Well, this is a community special, source. It, yeah, this is Whitewood Cider. They're from Olympia, Washington. They're a small uh, but very notable cider maker. 
uh, Dave White and Heather Ringwood, hence the Whitewood. This is called South Sounder, and this this small batch is made from locally community-sourced apples. I think it's backyard <coughs> apples, and it's very local. But the blend is going to be different every year. And he also, um, or they also do, a cider CSA, which I think is an interesting concept. And that's how I got this. I committed to a half-case CSA, and we're going to taste it for the first time. So talking oh, about wow. CSA, so John... Uh, do you do any type of CSAs? Uh, yes. <laughs> so what what we do? Catalog. Uh, we we don't do a cider CSA, but what we do is uh, we do a rare apple CSA. So um, what we do is every two weeks, from roughly the middle of September to the middle of November, um, our shareholders get. Bags um, get a total of about 12 pounds of apples, divided up into little bags by variety of um, rare rare apples. So no Max, no Cortlands, no Honeycrisp, no Gala, Fuji, whatever. It's all and mostly it's varieties that no one has heard of, and and um, our shareholders know that when they are when they sign up, they know they're going to be getting varieties. I mean, now now that we've been doing it several years, some of our customers are learning the, their special favorites that you know most people have never heard of. But we also are always doing new rare ones as well. And the beauty of that, which is also one of the beauties of of this modern cider revolution, is that you can use you can you can find a market for apples that you would just not be able to find a market for otherwise. You can take um, these rare apples to a farmer's market and people will look at them and admire them and want to handle them and so forth, but they'll probably still buy Honeycrisp or Gala or something. Um, so finding a model for, for, how, for, for getting people to buy what you want to grow is, is tricky. And a CSA, I think, is a really good way to do it. And, and also, I think that making cider is because you can put, you can put you know, whatever you're growing can go into your cider. I, I think that, that one of the really good things um, about, um, about the, cider, the new, I'll call it the new cider industry, is that, um, is that the large cider makers... Well, well, we'll go in reverse. The small cider makers will never be able to replicate the large cider makers without becoming large cider makers. And the large cider makers will never, ever be able to mimic the small cider makers. It's just impossible because the small cider makers um, are going to be able to use um, uh, uh, small amounts of widely different um, apple varieties that that a large producer just could never do, and so this cider, um, which is which I think it's great. It's made. This is the way I used to collect my apples: is go around to people's yards and ask them if they want them. And um, and more and more now, what people are doing, and probably these people are doing it, is in trade. They'll come and they'll prune your tree, or they'll maybe fertilize it, or mulch it, or you know whatever, um, give you some advice or something, and then get some fruit. And and so. Um, I think that that, and maybe this is the same with the beer, with the craft beer versus the big, the big sort of Samuel Adams types. Um, maybe, maybe 
a really good beer connoisseur can really tell one of those small producers. But with cider, to me, it is just so obvious because the big producer has to have a consistent product, um, and and the small producer doesn't. And so if you can find that price point of where you can make money as a small producer, you're golden. Well, that's, that's great. I want to... We could talk for hours, and I, I know what we should, but um, let's go back a little bit. So you, you found all these great apple trees in Maine. The heyday of cider making was like the 19th century. Um, what happened? You know, I want to really talk about temperance and what, what brought that about and a little more background on it, because I know you've talked about it. Um, well, I think that, that, that temperance um, and then prohibition um, are, are really complicated and probably um, could, would, would merit um, really almost a lifetime of study as, as to what really happened. Um, I, I think that it wasn't just about um, people not wanting other people or not wanting themselves to drink alcohol. Um, it, it may have been that um, that might have been part of it, but I think there was other things going on. And one thing is that um, that in a uh, emerging society, there was um, the, the necessity for for uh, tax support for for local and state and federal governments, and and so you have to have products that you can tax. You have to you have to um, um, you you have to to create a economic system that is taxable, and if people are making cider, which has one ingredient, apples, they can make it in their own backyard on their own farm. It's impossible to tax it. So so one of the best ways to to uh, change that is to make it illegal. Um, so and then instead you you. Um, you get those people to produce a product, and in this case it would be dessert and culinary apples, that are then sold in the marketplace, put on ships, sent to England, Charleston, New Orleans, whatever, and then you tax them. And um, so, so um, that's one thing that may have been happening. Another thing that, that, was ha- that certainly was happening is that in the latter part of the 19th century, and the early part of the 20th century, a lot more Eastern Europeans were coming to America, um, including a lot of Germans, a lot of beer drinkers. And as the society shifted from a rural-based society to a urban-based society, then making alcohol from apples became way more expensive, and you could make beer you know, in the basement of a building in the middle of the city. And, and simultaneous to that, um, um, there were way more agricultural lands opening up in the Midwest, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, so forth, that were big and flat and could grow grain so very easily and cheaply, barley, beer. Um, and, um, and in New England, there was so little, relatively speaking, good flat farmland that they tended to use that land for their most valuable vegetable crops and grow their apples 
um, on the rocky hillsides. Now, they just didn't have the land to put into barley. And so, so almost by default, apples became the preferred, uh, you know, uh, raw material for, for alcohol. Also, um, so, so, um, um, so there was this, you know, this thing about urban and beer. Also, um, I read recently that when uh, Coca-Cola first came out, and everybody knows Coca-Cola had cocaine in it at first, and, um, and it was advertised as an alternative to cider. Um, it was effervescent, and it gave you a buzz because it had cocaine in it. And, um, and so it, it was, and, and I imagine, you know, basically I think Coca-Cola is just sugar, um, and sugar became cheap um, because you could import it from, you know, wherever, you know, Caribbean. And I also read, but I haven't heard, I haven't been able to figure out when, when this date was, or even if this was, that certain laws came in in the 20th century that made it more difficult for cider to be, to be transported over state lines than either beer or wine. And so it, it almost seems like um, even though beer was gaining in popularity throughout the latter part of the 19th century and especially in the 20th century, that somehow the beer producers felt like they needed to sort of um, uh, give a final blow to the cider industry. So, um, so there may have been a bunch of different things going on. People say, well, people didn't like people to get drunk, so they got rid of cider. But what about all, all mineral, you know, all the, the hard liquor, the beer, the wine, none of that, you know, uh, that all came back. So it can't, be, it can't be simply that it was alcoholic and they didn't want alcohol. There was a lot more going on. Also, another thing I read was that cider was more, and, and I'm not this is I guess this is sort of true, cider was more of, an, of a waspy drink, and, the, and the, the majority or an increasing number of immigrants in the latter part of the 19th century were not from England. They were from other places where cider was not the traditional alcoholic beverage. So I think, I think that why this happened is a combination of a lot of different things that were going on. And I think it's very interesting. It is for me, too. What, what, what are some books that, that we could read? You mentioned uh, The Apples of New York from 1906. And yeah, I know, what are your go-to resources? Well, a lot of time doing this stuff. Well, S.A.B.'s well, The Apples of New York, two-volume set. Um, there, the, the, the best book um, on apple varieties... Um, is is about to come out, and it's and I think it's going to be called the Apples of America. I I can't remember the title, and it's it's uh, written by Dan Bussey, B U S S E Y, and he Dan works at Sea Savers Exchange in Decorah, Iowa, and it's and his editor is Kent Wheely, who started Seed Savers, and um, and that book is going to be about fifteen volumes and have. 20,000 varieties and be out of the price range of most people. Um, but but it, will be, it will be a really, really great resource for people that are interested in varieties. Um, in, terms, in terms of um, 
of cider and sort of cider history and that sort of thing. Um, you know, Ben Watson's um, book is really good, um, and I think it's called Cider Sweet and Hard or Cider Hard and Sweet. And um, and then uh, Annie Prue has a book that's that's the opposite. Hers is sweet and hard, and his is hard and sweet, or whatever. <laughs> and then um, and then Claude Jolly Kerr, um, hard and sweet. Um, Claude Jolly Kerr has an app, has a book on cider making that is um, that's very good. But but a little more for the serious producer, yeah. So it it's it's it ups the level of um, you know how much commitment you have to. And um, Claude is from is from Quebec, and that's a fairly new book. Um, there are there are many books from the um, from the nineteenth uh, century and even eighteenth century. That are very interesting, and I think you could. I mean, uh, the real classics. There's A.J. Downing, Fruits and Fruit Trees of America, and <clears throat> and Cole's American Fruit Book is another one. Um, these are probably fairly easy to get now because of the internet, but um, but they tend to be expensive, and they're and they're really for I'd sort of say for historians, um, for. Um, for cider uh, apples and cider varieties, um, oh gosh, what's what's it now? I'm get, drawing a blank on what's her name from England. Um, do you know who I mean? Um, oh darn. Okay. Well, we'll we'll, we'll look her up. Let's, there's let's a, we'll, it there's let's a lot. Let's there's a, there's out. all sorts of English and French books. As One well. more question. Jumping back to you know, you discovering apples and the life of apples in Maine. Uh, what about terroir and, and, and hard cider? Okay, yeah. And you talked about there's certain, you know there's certain times you're going to harvest apples in your town in Maine. Yeah. And that must be part of it, too. So, so the, the, um, the, I think that the most important aspect of that is that, is that your apples should really must be completely ripe. So that's probably that's probably number one, and that has that really has nothing to do with where you're growing them. It's just that they just really must be ripe. The the um, the sort of classic way of um, of uh, collecting cider apples is to let them drop. So so put a sheet out or or in the fall mow your orchard or something and just let them drop and collect them as they drop. If you can't do that. Then you should let them uh, start to drop, and then shake them and um, and collect them off the ground. Um, I I have a little expression that I say to myself, which is that the plant responds to the environment in which it finds itself. And and um, to me, um, what that means is, you know, people say, "Well, is global warming real or whatever?" And I say, "Well, you know, the plant responds to the environment in which it finds itself, and whatever that is." Um, it's going to respond, and the obvious, the, the obvious extremes are, if you, if you um, have incredible amounts of rain all summer, then the apples are watery and they don't have as much flavor. If if it's very dry, and um, they don't all die, but then you get a concentrated flavor, and you get really um, it, whether it's a dessert fruit or a cider apple. So, um, so to me. Just with the example of water, you can tell that terroir is not a myth. It, what, what they're growing in is very important. Um, I, I think that um, 
there's, there's two things that you can do about the soil itself. One is you can buy um, or obtain land that has what somebody has determined is the perfect soil for cider and the perfect climate and exposure and so forth. Or you can work with the plant to, um, to, uh, to manipulate, for lack of a better word, the terroir, the soils, um, and the, the condition in which the apple is growing. And, and um, I uh, sort of chose the latter. I, I bought really cheap land that, that had never been farmland, no stone walls. And, um, and then I realized that if I was going to grow apples, I was going to have to, to basically manipulate the soil. And I do that with the use of compost, with the use of wood chips, um, with, and with the other plants that I plant around the tree. So, so you are creating an environment for that tree. This is an amazing show. Gay and Kay, we didn't really get a chance to talk too much, but John, so we, we're going to have you back, man. And uh, this is when we go to the United States of Cider and we, and we start writing down all the, the other questions we have. In closing, I'd like to thank our sponsors at Union Beer Distributors, suppliers of world-class ales and ciders. They've helped to bring this podcast to you tonight. Thanks to John Bunker, Apple historian, for joining me to talk apples and cider on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks again to Gay Howard and Kay Michaels for helping me put together the show and our engineer extraordinaire, Jack Inslee. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.